Good morning. We're back. This is great. No? Okay. All right. Scared some people off last week. No, I'm just kidding. We had a lot of people away this week. Uh, just real quick though, as we kind of get over September <laughs> and move into the fall, what's going to be really important, I'm just throwing this out here and then I'm going to harass all of us about this every week, is that our teams, our volunteers um, have been, you know, severely depleted with all the changes. And so there's going to be lots of things that we need to be doing to make this happen. Um, and then especially as we start kind of midweek stuff and other things like that. So we're going to try to get some sign-up lists ready and that kind of thing for you this month so that can, we can really start to build our volunteer base back up. And, I mean, you don't understand how much work goes into getting this, making this happen. And so for everybody who is serving already, just make sure you thank them. Make sure you appreciate them because so much work and energy and planning goes into making this happen. Um, and then secondly, we were going to have online service next week, but we changed our mind. Uh, a lot of our church is gone because Tim's getting married <laughs> um, and I'm doing the marrying. Um, so that was one of the reasons we were going to do online, but some of you brave uh, men and women decided, no, no, we'll take it on. We want to gather. So we are still going to have service here. Um, and we're going to take a break from this series next week. Uh, John is going to teach. Uh, Matt's going to lead. And it's just going to be a time of probably extended worship and reflection together as the church. Sound good? Yeah, it does. All right, back into our series, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we did last week is we started this very, very key series about this very, very key doctrine. And we looked specifically at the importance of the Trinity. The importance of understanding the Christian teaching about God. And that anyone and everyone's idea of God cannot be simultaneously true. And so we worked through the implications of if the Trinity is Father, Son, Spirit, what does that look like? And that God is one in essence, that is what God is, that he, that he is God, but that there's a, a difference in personhood, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the implications of that are massive. And last week we looked specifically at how that changes our understanding of even the gospel. And it's, it's a need of ours in the West to regain an understanding, a robust understanding of the gospel. And a robust understanding of the fact that the gospel is the work of the Trinity, saving us to the Trinity. And that it's not just Father, Son, or Spirit, but that it is Father, Son, and Spirit working in complete, perfect, self-giving love and unity to chase us down and rescue sinners. That is the gospel. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to work through the implications of that. I gave you some homework last week. Do you remember what it was? Pay attention to how you pray this week, right? So I kind of challenged you because some of us are kind of the Father Gods, Father Gods, Father Gods, or the Daddy Gods. That, one, that one's like, Ugh. right? Mm, Daddy God, just, it's like, woo, the cringe, cringe is real on that one, right? Or Jesus, 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 or Spirit, Spirit, Spirit. But that there's actually a way to pray that, that is Trinitarian. That there's a way to enter into this triune community of love by entering into prayer speaking to our Father by the work of his Son through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that they're all equally important. So I hope you had fun doing that. Uh, this week we're going to look at God as Father. Let me just say from the beginning that the health of your relationship with God, although you need to have clarity on who Jesus is as the Son, and we need to understand who and what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, the health of your relationship with God depends so much so on your approach to God as Father. And it's, it's seriously lacking in the West, our understanding. And Matt and I were talking about this as we looked for songs 
to sing about our Father. And we can find lots of songs about Jesus the Son. We can find lots of charismatic songs about the work of the Spirit. But we're severely in need of how we approach God our Father. And Jesus only approaches God as Father. And that's crazy. Then in the New Testament, Jesus only prays to Father except once. And that's when he's on the cross. Because there's a, 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 like a, a division between him. There's a felt d- distinction between him and Father for the first time in eternity past. But every other time Jesus speaks to God, it's as Father. And that's very unique. It's unique to Christianity. It's unique to the gospel. It's unique to the biblical witness of who God is. So I just want to say how important it is for us to understand that. That the health of your relationship today depends on understanding this. Uh, the late... Puritan theologian J.R. Packer said it like this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Now that's weighty, and that's emphasized, but I think he's right. I think there's something very important about this. And by way of introduction, just to kind of generally talk about the Father, and then we're going to look specifically at a text of how Jesus teaches about what the Father is like. The Bible doesn't speak of God like a Father. It's not as a Father. It's not like a Father, but that He is Father. That God is Father. It's not a metaphor. It's not a mental picture. It's actually a description of His nature. It's a description of God's character. It's a description of how God wants us to relate to him and approach him. It changes how we see him by seeing him as father. And in general terms, it does help us understand the nature of God by being relational. That if he's not just cosmic being somewhere out there, that that he's knowable. That he's relational, that he's approachable. And as a father, he cares, he protects, he provides. All of those things generally are wrapped up in there. That he has a responsibility to care for and protect and lead and teach as a good father does. That's true. But for some of us, even generally going there is difficult for us. Some of us, it's actually hurtful to even try to understand how to approach God as father. Why? Well, because we had very broken examples and models of fatherhood. Or we didn't have a father. We just had an absence Just an emptiness there, and we didn't even know how to define or relate to a father. And this is very important because for those of us who have father wounds that go very deep, or memories of pain and neglect and abuse or violence or just brokenness, it's important that as we approach God as father, we have to understand that God as father is not a reflection of an earthly father. But that God as as father is the perfect reflection of father that no earthly father will ever, ever match up to. Never amount to. So we have to be careful not to project a reality that is here in the brokenness of our sinful world and allow that to keep us from fully kind of jumping into the father's arms the way that he wants us to. Super important. And I think this is even more important today. 
with just the phenomenon and the devastation of fatherlessness in homes in the West. How we relate to our fathers, just is just psychologically true, impacts every relationship that we have in life. Every aspect of our life is affected by how we relate to our father. Mothers are extremely important, but they're distinct. There's a difference. And the, the pandemic of fatherlessness is ravaging not only individuals and leaving them with lifelong wounds and brokenness, but entire communities, entire cultures broken by fatherlessness. Just a few stats to kind of locate you. A third of all kids born today in North America are born into single-parent homes. 24.7 million children in the U.S. don't have a biological father in their home. And that percentage has quadrupled since 1960. So although fatherlessness and fathers have always been an important relationship, we are dealing with it at unprecedented rates. And then we wonder why some of the brokenness is coming out in our society. Well, well since the 1960s, we've seen a quadrupling of this. We have organizations today screaming for justice while trying to dismantle the nuclear family and get rid of fathers. We're, we're broken. 85% of youth in prison are fatherless. 90% of homeless youth, fatherless. Fatherlessness makes us four times more likely to experience poverty, severe poverty. Two times more likely to experience thoughts of suicide or actual, actual acts of suicide or suicidal attempts and 10 times more likely for substance abuse. As fathers go, so goes the culture. And this is something of a Christian distinction that we need to maintain. The value and worth of men and women, because they're both made in the image of God, but they're not the same. And if we have a, an, a pandemic of fatherlessness in our society, it must be addressed. Because moms are stepping up to take over where fathers are failing. And so we do have a problem. And I think that's why the Western church has actually, for the last 50 years, shied away from talking about God as father. Out of insecurity as a dad, knowing how broken I am, I don't even want to think about approaching God as father. You with me, men? You with me, dads? There's an insecurity. There's a feeling of fragility there, and we don't even, we don't even want to. And others, others of us, men and women, who have experienced brokenness in our own fathers, it's too painful. Or we just don't even know how to do it. And we need healing from that. We need restoration so that we can approach God as Jesus invites us to approach God as Father. And also as a quick aside, because of just some of the conversations in the last couple decades, with the rise of kind of feminist the uh, theology and theologians, God as Father doesn't mean God as male. We don't need to deconstruct God as Father. It's not going to get us anywhere. It's going to take us several steps back. Maleness and femaleness are not categories that apply to God. Male and female are actually a reflection of something that is true about the image of God. So it's, it doesn't run both ways. It only goes one way. That God creates humanity. Remember last week, it's what they are, human beings. But then difference in personhood, who they are, right? Go back last week and remind yourself of that if you, if you missed out. It's really important though. And biblically, there's actually maternal depictions of God. That's what's unique about it. So kind of like the screaming about the patriarchy, depicting God as a male to build power structures for male domination. I mean, you're fighting a phantom, fighting a ghost. It's not there. It's not true. In Hosea 11 and 13, we see that God speaks about teaching Israel how to walk, growing them up, actually raising them, caring for Israel as a nation. 
and as a lioness hunting and a bear with her bear cubs. That's a maternal thing. That's a care. That's something about God as his, in his character. Isaiah 66, 13. I will comfort you in Jerusalem as a mother comforts her child. So maternal de depictions of the nature and character and activity of God are not missing from Scripture. But the importance of approaching God as Father is clearly underlined and emphasized for a reason, and it, and it affects how we relate to God. So when Scripture, and especially Jesus, speaks to God and as God, and addresses God as Father, or He, it's not to speak of God as masculine. It's to stress that God is personal and not impersonal. Not an impersonal object or force, but a personal being to be known. A being that cares and sees and knows us. That's very important. In 2006, there was a movement within the Presbyterian Church in the U.S. that allowed replacements for names of Father, Son, and Spirit. They allowed replacements like Rainbow, Ark, and Dove. Rock, Cornerstone, and Temple. Fire that consumes, sword that divides, and storm that melts mountains. And compassionate mother, beloved child, and life-giving womb. Problem with that is that those sound like they belong at a Nuit Blanche exhibit more than anywhere else. It's problem number one. But problem two is that that is not how Scripture speaks about God. It represents a low view of Scripture. A low view of orthodoxy. And it's not how Jesus relates to God. And it's not how God reveals his triune nature. So it's not the same to say compassionate, mother, rainbow, and life-giving womb. Like, it's just, it's just not. It sounds so cool. No, it doesn't. But you see the, 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 the need culturally in our postmodern society to deconstruct everything. And if we go and just deconstruct everything and not rebuild something that is actually rooted in reality and truth, we are left with nothing. That's what's happening today. We're just tearing down. Tearing down everything and not offering hope or truth or freedom in anything else. So we need to do better. And I think biblically, we see it in how God is spoken of as Father, Son, and Spirit. That we're made for the Trinity that we're made by the Trinity, and that we're saved by the work of the Trinity. And surprisingly, the Old Testament does mention God as Father, but it's only a handful of times, about 14 times. And it's never addressed personally. It's only addressed collectively. Spoken about as the Father of Israel in uh, Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows. That's a collective thing about the nature of God, but that's, that's communal, it's collective. Deuteronomy 32, 6. Is God not your, plural, Father who created you, speaking to Israel? And then Jesus shows up. And it changes everything. Because the Old Testament only spoke of God as kind of giver of life, birth, kind of birth of a nation of Israel type language. Covenantal. And then Jesus shows up and speaks with God and to God in this intimate personal way and it's unique because Jesus is showing up saying that there's something that has changed that although he has always been father from eternity past he is now going to be personally available to all of us changes everything it removes all barriers the gospel comes and invites and says come all you who are weary come all of you who need rest because your father is waiting 
And Jesus changes everything. Every single time he addresses God, it says Father. Church, that's significant. Like, that's a big deal. Like, we can't just deconstruct that and call him Rainbow. Like, there's, some, there's something about that, right? And he doesn't even address God as creator or ruler or judge or higher power or, or mysterious force. But, but Father. And a layer deeper, not even just Father. But the Aramaic word, Abba. That's knowledge. That, that's intimacy. That's, that's, there's something sweet about that. Our kids, for some reason, in the last couple, I mean, maybe it's just COVID, they both reverted by themselves to calling us mama and dada. Guess what I haven't done? Corrected them. Because there's something sweet that comes off of a child's lips addressing their parents, and there's affection and there's closeness. You can tell the health of a relationship by the way people speak to each other. See, husbands and wives speak to each other, and it's always just like, dear... It's just kind of like, ugh. <laughs> right? And then you see like little pet name, little baby sugar, mm, honey. Right? It's like, there, there's a difference there. I'm not going to share any of the ones I use. It's private. Okay, but the, do you see there's, there's intimacy. There's, there's comfort. There, there's openness. There's vulnerability. There's transparency in how Jesus speaks of God. And the Pharisees go crazy. They go crazy. Because he, he, he's like, no, no, but I, I'm, I'm the son. The father sent me and I'm going to go back to the father. And they're like, what? No, no, no. He's ours. Like he belongs to us. And he's like, no, no, no. You belong to me and I belong to the father and the father belongs to me. And we're going to unpack that in our, our, our message about the son and the relationship between the father. But the Aramaic word for dad communicates that closeness. And only Jesus knows the father. This is an amazing claim that he makes over and over again. And he's speaking to Israel. He's saying, oh, you thought, you thought you knew the Father. But no, but only I know the Father. And only the Son knows the Father, and only the Father knows the Son. It's a special relationship. And then the work of the gospel invites us into an experience of that relationship. Of Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus is the only one that shows us what the Father is like. That he is the spitting image of his dad. You want to know what God is like? Jesus. You want to know how God speaks? Jesus. You want to know how God lo loves? Jesus. You want to know how God thinks about any topic? Jesus. That's how significant the relationship of the Son and the Father is. So, let's look at what this Father is like. Let's go Luke 15. And we're actually going to return to this parable and unpack it even more when we do our series on the parables starting in the fall. But in Luke 15, this is, uh, some of you know it as the, the parable of the prodigal son. And this is not only Jesus' most famous parable, but it's actually one of the most famous stories ever told. I mean, it's celebrated in all sorts of ways, in culture and in media and in film. And sometimes when we call it the prodigal son, it, it does capture it. Prodigal just means wayward, right? Reckless, extravagant. But when you actually understand the story, it's not a story of a prodigal son. It's the story of two lost sons and an extravagantly loving father. And it's actually one of the most concentrated messages and stories that Jesus uses to point to the truth of the gospel and revealing what the Father is like. And the context is important because Jesus is actually the third of three parables that are packed together. It's like a triple parable, and this is the last one. And before he shares this about the two lost sons, he just shared a parable about the lost sheep, right? 
that the shepherd went and did, uh, turned, I mean, turned the countryside upside down to find this lost sheep, right? And then it's followed by a woman who loses her coin and goes crazy, turns the house upside down to find this coin. They both end in a party, a celebration of, wow, what was lost was found. Praise God. God is so good. And then Jesus shares this. And it's very different. And it kind of has a, a sting to it. It kind of has an oomph to it that hangs with the audience. So starting in verse 1 through 3, it's important to see who's in attendance. It's really important sometimes when Jesus starts teaching. you got to go back a little bit and pay attention to who's there because the audience sets a lot of what he's applying, right? And he starts off and it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's good news. Church, if we don't have the sinners, whoever those are, drawing near to hear the gospel, there's something wrong. There's something broken. And Jesus had it all the time. And he was criticized constantly by this second group who was listening to him that day. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, because they always do. Religious people are grumpy. They just find something to grumble about. And they say, this man is receiving sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. I love that. Jesus is waiting for the moment where this one's going to be the one. And he's like, he's looking across. He's like, oh, I got everybody here. All right, I got one. Ready? So now there was a man with two sons, right? And then he starts. I just love it. So Jesus is, is like, okay, this is it. This is the moment where I get to share this parable. Now understand that there's two distinct groups there when Jesus teaches this. There's the rebellious who are very clearly rebellious. They smell different. They look different. They sound different. But then there's the religious so when, anytime scripture says the sinners and the tax collectors, all that saying is that is people who have kind of just said, religion's not my thing, I'm going to go, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, do your God thing, that's cool, I'm going to go and pursue freedom from God. That's the sinners. It's the outcasts, it's kind of the weirdos, the sick people, the drunks. And then there's the religious, who don't get along with those ones, because they define themselves by what they don't do. They define themselves by who they're not. And we're not like those guys. And then Jesus tells this story. Skip down to verse 11, watch. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. That's important. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into the far country. He just went far away, as far away from his father as he could. And there he wasted his property in reckless living. That's where we get the word prodigal. And when he had spent everything he had, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Pause. Here's a couple things. Notice that he approaches his dad and says, hey, I want my inheritance. Do you know what has to happen usually before an inheritance is split up? Well, they have to die. So in this moment, the offense is real. It's like, all right, dad, it's enough. You're old. I just don't want to be around you. When are you going to go? Like, I just wish you were dead so I could just take what's mine and get out of here. So obviously there's something broken already between this son and the father at home. You with me on that? And so he thinks that the answer is getting away from his dad to go out and do him, to go live life. I just need freedom from the father. Then I will be fulfilled. All I need is just, just give me what's yours and let me just go and do me and do mine. That's this son. Now, according to ancient property laws at the time, the firstborn would get two-thirds of the estate where the secondborn would get a third. But it's not uncommon for the father to grant legal rights to an inheritance when he's still alive. 
but to come and demand full liquidation of it, which is the word in Greek, is to say, I just wish you were dead, just give me what's mine. The younger son wants his father's stuff so that he can just go and live his best life. And just go and do him. He doesn't want to live according to anything that the father describes or defines. Because he's believing that fulfillment and freedom is away from whoever his father is. And Jesus is painting a real picture of some of us younger sons. That we want God's stuff. We want what God can do for us. But really just to take it and go do what we want to do with it. It's the same lie in the garden. There's amazing rhythm in the garden of a God who gives and it's good. Gives and it's good. And then the second that humanity takes, it's bad. We take what's ours. Instead of looking to what God defines as right and good and fulfilling and satisfying and beautiful, we define it ourselves. Let me go and live for ourselves. That's exactly what we see in the younger son. The younger son thinks that life is in freedom from his father. And if you noticed, it feels great at first. Living it up, it's probably, he's got stacks. He's just blowing his money. He's, way, he's so far away from his dad, he has no worries whatsoever. No one's going to see how I'm living. It's like that four years of college, right? I'm just going to reinvent myself. I'm just going to explore, right? And just go and just live recklessly and extravagantly with everything that he has. And then something out of his control realizes that he's out of control. He spends everything he has. Feels real great and then ends up in loneliness and um, misery and need. And that is exactly the younger brothers. It's like skydiving without a parachute. It feels real free until you need to land. Right? It's Jesus talking about the the wide road. It's, It's wide open. It's so easy to get in. But it leads to destruction. See, this life is easy. Just follows the way of everyone else. And this is a picture of sin, church. Very attractive, very appealing, but always over promises and under delivers. Your heart and mind will tell us that freedom from God is how we find satisfaction. And fill our minds with all sorts of things that are not true about God so that we can rationalize and moralize our, ourselves out into self-fulfillment and self-actualization. That's the younger brother. And he realizes that it overpromised, that it underdelivered. And it promised him the world, but it left him begging for pig slop. See, sin enters the picture not in bad stuff we do and behavior. Sin enters the picture in a malfunction of what we want to do. Do you see the brokenness in him first? That already he desires this thing. He wants it, and he wants it ultimately. He thinks that it's going to be the thing that fulfills him. And he chooses self-rule over God's rule, and he wants things that aren't his father more than the father himself. And what's actually shocking about this isn't that. Because <laughs> some of you and some of us, uh, me, people like you and me, some of us are the younger brother. Been there, done that. We thought that that was going to be it. We thought that freedom from the Father was going to be the way that we find ourselves, And we were left with the only thing that we, was actually important to us, and that's ourself. And it let, leads us to loneliness. Brokenness. But the most shocking thing is that the Father actually does what he asks. And right away you're kind of like, well, it must not be that bad for the father to go, okay, fine, I'll give you your piece of your inheritance. But you know what this is called? It's called passive judgment. It's not active wrath or judgment or fire raining down. It's a passive judgment that God will lovingly hand us over to what we think we want. One of the most loving things that God can do for somebody is say, okay, 
and hand us over to what we think is going to give us freedom so that we will run to the end of ourself and realize the only thing we found is nothing. That's one of the most loving things you can do. So don't see this as God the Father being complicit in sin. It's definitely not that. It's passive divine judgment to say, oh man, you don't know what you're running into. You don't know what you're going at. You're, you're home. Like, like I'm here. You're, you have everything you need. But he pursues everything away from his father. Romans 1, 24 to 25 stresses this and talks about the difference between idols and worshiping created things instead of creator God. And then says that God will give us over to the lust of our heart. So that we go and just experience impurity and brokenness and all sorts of things. Why? Because it's through the dishonoring of ourself that we come back and want to honor God. That's the younger brother. That's the, the prodigal nature of this younger son. That self-indulgence and self-discovery and self-actualization really ends up giving us exactly what we went after. And that's you. And you alone. And the younger son ends up alone. So one of the most loving things God could do to us in this room is hand us over to some of the things that we think will satisfy us only so that we will taste and see that those things are like pig slop. And we run to under ourselves, and we realize that it was actually God that we've been searching for the whole time. That's the story of the prodigal. And the most amazing part of the story is that it's his self-discovery, his pursuit of freedom from God that actually leads him to change. Watch the next few verses, verse 15 through 19, watch. So he went and hired himself out to the one, one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed, he was hungry, with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he came to his, sense, his senses, he woke up. I don't know, if you're like face down, hung over, in a, in a pig trough, maybe you'd be like, wow, it's probably not good. Right? That's what happens. He comes to himself. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Okay, I'll get up. I'll arise. I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, and he starts to rehearse what he's going to say to get back into his dad's good books. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me as one of your hired servants. Pause there for a second. Don't rejoice yet. Because although the son came back to himself and came, kind of came back to his senses, notice that everything he says is still flawed. This is the beginning of repentance because he realizes that his way was no way at all. But then notice as, as he starts to talk about what he's doing is he's still controlling the narrative. He's still rehearsing what he's going to say to the father to try to earn his way back into the father's good books. You notice that? craziest part about this is it, it is a direct quotation of Exodus 10, 16, when the Pharaoh pleads with Moses and Aaron to stop the plagues. I have sinned against heaven and before you. Treat me like a hired servant. And Jesus is doing that intentionally. Pharaoh wasn't actually repenting. Pharaoh just wanted his circumstances to change. So he just figured, I'll just throw Yahweh into the pantheon of gods and toss up some Hail Marys or whatever cosmic universe thing I'll throw up there and hope that he just does what I want him to. So his repentance is flawed. And then he rehearses it. I can just see him rehearsing it all the way home, covered in pig slop, smelling disgusting, looking disgusting. 
okay, here's what I'll do. So then I'll, you know, and I'll appeal to this and then, and I'll tell him this. And then, okay, and then, then he'll just make me a hired servant because, man, they live good because my dad's generous. Like, that's amazing. So I'll just be a servant and then I'll get to eat. I won't be living here, right? That, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. It's still his way, but he's just trying to control the father. It's still self-serving. He's hungry. <laughs> he needs a place to stay. He still just wants the father's stuff. He still just wants what the father can give him so that he can just be comfortable. He can just find satisfaction. And the key behind this is that he's still thinking like a servant and not a son. That changes everything. He's still thinking like a servant. And the word is actually slave. He still thinks that he can work off his debt as a slave and by his own effort earn his way back into the good books as a son. But he's lost that. That's gone. In that culture, if this happened... This is bad. You're not getting back into the family. Are you kidding me? You're lucky not to be stoned in public. Right? Like this is serious. This is severe. And he walks home, rehearsing this, and then watch the father's response in verse 20. And the son got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer to be called your son. Notice he doesn't say what he rehearsed. He doesn't say what he rehearsed. He appeals to the father now. He doesn't offer service. He appeals to the father and begs to become a son. That's the moment of repentance. The reason why that's the moment of the repentance is because he has just experienced the compassion of the father. And what's crazy about this is that the father sees him a long way off, which means what? He's looking for him. He's waiting. The end of every workday, he gets on the porch and grabs his favorite beverage and he just scans the horizon for his son. When is he coming home? I, I, I want him home. And he's a long way off. And he's covered in filth. And the father runs to him. And it's very undignified what the father does here by running. No patriarch in Israel ran. First of all, they had those epic robes on. I mean, you know, Jedis don't run. They have lightsabers, right? They don't need to run. They just... Okay, that, that, so, so they even hike his robe up and he, he runs and all of his servants and his other kids are looking at him going, what is dad doing? I can see his drawers. It's not a good look for the father. But that's how extravagant his compassion is. That's how extravagant his love is. Now think about this for a second. You just had your son, basically just middle finger to the high heaven. I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine and I'm out. You'd think he'd be standing on the porch, pacing back and forth, raging, right? Just, oh well, man, he gets home, I'm just, oh yeah, like just, mm. but, it's, but it's compassion. It's compassion that he feels when he sees his son. You know what this means? That God sees you. Like, like, like God's looking for you. God's looking for all of the lost sons and daughters. All of the, the prodigals out there. All of those people who have run off and thought the freedom and satisfaction and fulfillment were in self-discovery instead of being at home with God the Father. And I love that he like goes to try to deliver his speech and the Father just moves on. 
right? So he tries to go and say it, and then the father just kind of moves on and doesn't let him finish. The father goes, but he said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found, so let's party. Let's celebrate. This is crazy because he goes and he tries to rehearse his little thing, his little cute thing that he rehearsed, and the father doesn't even address him. Turns to his servants and goes, okay, right? And everything he says here is significant. We'll unpack it more next month. But the best robe is, is his robe. It's usually the father's robe. And he doesn't clean him up. It doesn't say that the pig slop gets cleaned off of him. It says he just throws the new robe on him. Just throws that new robe right on him. And the ring is, is a signet ring with the family's emblem in it, which will allow him to conduct business on behalf of the family name. That he's welcomed back home. That he's still a part of the family. And he gives him shoes. Why? Well, because servants and slaves didn't have shoes. Shoes were a sign of sonship. Shoes belonged to children, not servants. This is a moment of adoption. Just a power, powerful statement. And then, of course, the best food, because our daddy knows how to eat. Amen. Goes and calls for some jerk chicken, some oxtail, some curry goat. And just parties, right? Religious people don't know how to party. Christians know how to party. Because we get to taste and see that the Father is good, right? We get to celebrate. And that's our future, by the way. If you don't like parties now, don't read Revelation. Because we're heading to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is just going to be a party. Forever. Best food, right? It's amazing so that, <laughs> amen, somebody's hungry. <laughs> but the fattened calf was only used for very, very rare special occasions. Very, very rare special occasions. And this is a special occasion to the father. Because he's compassionate. And he's looking for his lost sons. And he's looking. And compassion just comes out of him. And he throws himself on his son and he kisses him. I told Gabriel especially. I mean, Raina, I just smooch all the time. Look at her, right? But I told Gabriel, I'm going to kiss him on the lips until I'm dead or I have dementia and I forgot that I told him that. There's nothing macho about this father. There's, there's nothing. There's no insecurities about affection. There's no insecurities about his love. It's just perfectly compassionate to his son. And the Greek is actually, he continues to kiss him. I just love that. Like, it's, just like, it's not just like he kisses him like in a dignified way. Just like, hmm, my son. It's just like he's, he's on him. He's just like, mwah, 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 like just, I love you. I like you imagine the scene though, right? And this son is so thrown off because he just rehearsed what he's going to say to try to get back into his dad's good books. And his dad just implodes the entire thing. Ruins his whole plan, right? And it happens so quick, he doesn't even know what to say. Here's what James K.A. Smith says about this, and he sums it up so well. Watch this. The wayward son, the prodigal one, is not defined by his prodigality, his, his recklessness. But he's defined by the welcome of a father who never stopped looking, who is ever scanning the distance, and who runs to gather him up in an embrace. God is not tapping his foot judgmentally inside the door as you sneak in. Right? Imagine that, right? Guilty? A couple times. Sorry, Mom. Crawling over the threshold of the door in shame. He's the father running towards you. Losing his sandals on the way. His robes spilling off his shoulders with a laughing smile whose joy says, I can't believe you came home. This is what grace looks like. Thanks, Mr. Right. 
this scene captures so much about what's true about the Father, about God, our Father. But remember, there was a second brother in this story, right? This is amazing, because Jesus just told the story, and you think that this is the end. You're like, what a good story. Dustin's sweating. This must be the end, right? It's not, it's not the end. Watch verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came near and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He can tell he doesn't know how to party. Because then he goes and asks one of the servants, what do these things mean? <laughs> Just kind of like you hear a party and you're like, what is that bizarre noise, right? You know you're lame when, okay? And he said to him, well, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf. That's a big deal. Because he has received him back safe and sound. Uh, that word in, in the Greek, by the way, fun fact, is actually like pure, clean. It's a ritual term. That the father's actually cleansed the son and he's home and he's back. It's a big deal. But he was angry. And that's, that's raging. He was furious. And he refused to go into the party. His father came out and he entreated him. He pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look here. Now this is very disrespectful. Notice that the, the younger son who comes back, he addresses him as father, right? He talks to him as father. The older son says, look here. These many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat. Maybe he's hungry. I don't know. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, can't even, can't even get brother off his lips, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, the father replied, son, love that. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is now found. There's a lot going on here, and we don't have time to unpack it all. But notice that the older brothers, the father is compassionate, and the older brother is confused and angry by a show of grace and mercy. And he's going like, your son doesn't deserve this. Look what, he, look what he's done. I do. Like, I deserve this party. Like, come on, give some credit where credit is due. I've been working here this whole time. I've been working in the field. I've never run off and done what he's done. Where's my party? Where's my curry goat? That's, that's what I would have said. And notice that Jesus just turned his attention from one sec section of the audience to the other. From the sinners to the Pharisees. And now he's talking to the Pharisees. And he's talking to their legalism. And he's talking to their religiosity. Because the Pharisees were notorious for abusing the law, making up other weird ones, and then keeping all of them and then looking down on everyone else who doesn't. And just factionalism and us and them. And it's very subtle, church. This can creep in very, very subtly. It's very sneaky. Legalism can come out in lots of ways. It can come out in the kind of like commission where it's like, look what I've done for you, God. Look at how I've prayed. Look how I've done my readings every morning. Look at how much faith I've had in you. It can come out by that, but we highlight what we do at the expense of what we don't. Or it comes from kind of a legalism of omission, where we point out what we've not done and other people have. But I've never lived like that. I've never done that. I've never said that. It's going to be so, so subtle and so dangerous. And it's actually the more dangerous son in the parable. That's Jesus' point. This is the son who says, you know, God, I, I prayed, I gave, I served, I, I did all this to you. I gave you my time and energy and I still got sick. 
I raised my kids in the church. I tried to teach them your ways and they're not following you. I've given all of my time and my life to you and people still walk away and hurt me and don't recognize me. It comes from a posture of God owing us, owing me. And we think that we can control God's feelings for us and his love and compassion for us by how much we've done for him. It's just classic religion, right? And notice where the older brother is. The older brother's home. He's been home the whole time. He's with his father. He doesn't love his father. He's home and miles away from his father. He's beside him, but he doesn't enjoy him. So let me ask you, older brothers in the room, do you enjoy God or do you just obey him? There's a big difference. We can obey a judge. We can obey, you know, whatever sovereign something full of power. But we can only enjoy the father. And the, the, the older son wasn't enjoying his father. And notice that it's not his badness that keeps him from his father. It's his supposed goodness. It's not his sins, because that's for the sinners. It's his pride, which is one of the most abominable sins. And so there's all sorts of irony that we're going to pa- unpack next, next week. But here's the point as we close and apply. Notice this father's response to both the younger and the older son. He goes to both of them. And just as dishonorable, by the way, when you threw a party, like a father throwing a party, your eldest son should be in there representing you, serving your guests, making sure the champagne was full, making sure the rice and peas and curry goat are going out, right? That's what the eldest son was supposed to be doing. He's out sulking. So the father had every right to go out and go, how dare you? How dare you? And it says he goes out and he pleads with him. He entreats him. He begs him. He says, son, like my, my boy, like there's affection in that. Boy, like I, I want you, not what you can do for me. You thought that I wanted you here this whole time because of what you could offer me? No, 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 I want you because you're my, you're my son. I don't want your morality. I don't want your rule keeping. I want you. I want your heart. And I want you to enjoy me. Religion never offers us that. So with the audience, Jesus is doing two things at the exact same time. He's criticizing the religious because he just got criticized by the religious. Do you catch that? What did they complain about? That Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. What's the father doing? He just received his sinning son and he's eating with them. Right? And the Pharisees are like, how dare you? And Jesus is like, that's what my dad's like. That's what our father's like. He receives sinners. Whether they're the younger brother or the older brother, all sinners are welcome to come in and know the father and he pleads with both of them. So notice, it's not just the parable of a lost son, it's the fact that both brothers are lost. That the younger brother is lost in his pursuit of freedom from the father on his terms, and the older brother is lost in his pursuit of acceptance from the father on his own terms, but both of them are working on their own terms. One is lost by rule breaking, the other is lost by rule keeping. The most beautiful part about this story is that the younger brother didn't get what he deserved. The older brother was trying to prove that he deserved what he did have. And then grace shows up and smashes all of that. And the father goes out to both. So this morning, some of us, we tend to be the younger brother. And we still think that it's kind of like extravagant living and going out there and getting away from God the father that we're going to find fulfillment. And the world's just going to tell us that one constantly. Right? It's not really going to, it's not going to fuel legalism in us. It's going to fuel license. It's going to fuel, tell us just kind of self-actualization is where fulfillment's found. 
Religion's lame, God is dead, all that stuff. Go pursue you and do you. That's what the world's sermon is. It's just a bad one, right? And the Father comes out to both of us. The gospel is good news because it's for the non-religious younger brothers and the religious older brothers in us. The gospel is the true story about a, a, a dad, a good, good dad, a good father who rescues rebels and then brings us home. So whether we think it's our badness that keeps us from our father or our goodness that keeps us with our father, Jesus smashes all of that because of grace. And the only remedy for that is grace and love of the father and the compassion and so regardless of where you're at and where your tendency is or even what your past says, notice that the solution, the remedy of it is the love of the Father. Jesus alone gives us access to God as Father. And he does this by sending his Son. In one of our favorite verses, right? John 3, 16 through 17. And God so loved the world that he sent, he gave of himself. Out of compassion, he gave his Son. And I think what Jesus is doing in that moment is that he's actually the true older brother. Jesus is the older brother who's been with the father the whole time, but perfectly, in righteousness. And he's the one that goes out and seeks after all, all the reckless brothers and all the religious brothers. So this morning, that's what I want us to reflect on. I want us to sing out of that. I want us to pray out of that. Some of you still think that you're earning God's favor, that he accepts you because of what you have done, or that he accepts you because of what you have avoided to do. And that is the heart of God as Father. That it's not those at all. It's out of his own compassion. And that Jesus gives us access to God as Father because he's the only one that knows the Father. Let me pray for us to that end. God, we're so thankful that as a good Father, you don't redeem us or adopt us or accept us because we're great kids. But because you're a great dad. And that you lavish grace and mercy on us out of your own compassion. That we can't manipulate that out of you, that we can't control you with that. You're not waiting for us to clean ourselves up and you're not waiting for us to please you with our deeds. That you want us right where we are. Whether we're miles away or we feel miles away or whether we're right beside you and we're just not enjoying you yet. I just pray for all of us, the younger brother and the older brother in all of us, that you remind us of grace. You remind us of the goodness of you as our father that we would hear your call and your voice to come home. Come home to celebrate. Come home to enjoy you. And come home to truly know you as a good, good father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.